Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So today we have a really special episode for you. The past two months we've been walking through the mammoth book of Job, eight episodes covering these eight key moments of Job's own journey of suffering. If you haven't yet, the best way to engage all of this is to go to our website store and purchase our companion Bible study. It's going to not only walk you through the text, but give you these key eight reflection exercises to personalize your own journey of suffering with Job. Today, however, is a special day. We have on this episode a special guest in the form of a licensed mental health therapist who just so happens to be my wife. I'm going to ask her to weigh in on the heavy questions of suffering we've been engaging so far. How do we talk about God and the role God plays in our trauma and abuse? What role does suffering play in post-traumatic growth? Why is it that religious friends tend to be some of the most difficult to talk to about our pain? And where is God in the midst of all this suffering? This episode is going to conclude our journey with Job, gathering up all of the questions and conversations we've started. And by the time we're done, you'll be wondering why Jenna, my wife, hasn't been the one teaching this whole time. So let's dive in. Well, hey everyone, welcome to The Burning Word. Man, this is an exciting episode because I am joined by the one and the only, the beautiful, the incredible, uh, my wife, Jenna Perrine, who is, to hype her just a little bit, uh, an incredibly trained mental health therapist who's done private practice for three years. She is an artist, having done a lot of training in visual arts, graphic design. She's the mastermind behind so much of what we've been doing at The Burning Word. And even more impressively, she is herself really theologically gifted, minded, pastor, extraordinaire. So I just could not go through a series on the book of Job without consulting Jenna as a therapist and as a theologian and as a pastor. So Jenna, it is good to have you. How are you feeling entering into this conversation? It's so weird. I'm really excited to be here. I I feel like I'm blushing. Husbands should give great compliments all the time like that. John does, but it's wonderful to be here. This has been my favorite thing you've made so far. So getting to talk about it and getting to dive into Job a little bit deeper and to nerd out on mental health stuff. I mean, what else should we be doing on a Sunday night? It's great. Well, so let's let's dive into this a little bit and let's talk about Job specifically to set you up as a therapist. How do you feel about Job? What what strikes you about the story of Job and studying Job and his suffering as it relates to our suffering? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, I, I want to say on behalf of all therapists, I think we should be grateful that the book of Job exists in the Bible period. Mm. Can you imagine the Bible without this book? You know, when we try to talk about God and the relationship to suffering, if we didn't have Job, it's not that the Bible would have nothing to say, but it would be a far less pointed message. It would, there would just be way less about it. And for me, it's a really emotional book. It's like a literary book. It's just, it's, it's written in that kind of parable style where you just feel really swept into it. And it's emotive and like a really good story. 
And I, that's how I think about it all the time. Imagine the Bible without Job and I would be heartbroken because I think it would leave a lot of people feeling alone, even more alone in their suffering, like the Bible, or more importantly, like God doesn't get it or he doesn't understand it. And by it being included in the canon itself, um, it's like God is saying, I see you. I saw you mm. enough to want to include this. I knew you were going to go through this. Uh, don't worry. I understand that these experiences are so important, so life-changing that they must be included in my communication with humankind. And so we get the book of Job in the Bible, and it's so good that we have it. I mean, there's kind of a sense as a therapist that you always feel like people aren't talking about suffering enough. The church isn't talking about suffering enough. And the problem can be God is so transcendent and almighty and so many of the bible stories hold god at distance as they should because he's god yet here we find god in the thick of suffering absolutely i feel like oh how did it go there was this great phrase i loved that was basically for a religion that is built around a suffering savior Mm. we do not talk enough about suffering and what it means to suffer with Christ, like Christ, what it means to worship someone who suffered as the means to our salvation. Yeah. Um, but suffering is really at the heart of the Bible and the gospel. And yet I do think in our enthusiasm to, you know, also share the beautiful gospel and the, the wonderful triumphant things that have happened because Christ has included us. Um, we can forget how important it is to um, emphasize suffering and the experience of it because maybe you've only experienced a little suffering in your life, but if you're someone who has had trauma, big T or little T um, or a a genuinely ongoing experience of suffering like Job, it is life-changing and trying to write God into that story can be really complicated as we see in the book of Job. Mm. Um, So I just think that the church... It doesn't need to be shy about talking about it. Again, yeah. we worship a suffering savior. He suffered. And so that should be something that brings us solace, something that we can connect to him around um, and actually learn from. And instead, there's a lot of, oh, don't worry, like, because he did it, you don't have to. Mm. I'm not actually sure I believe that. I don't know if that's a completely theological thing to say, but I really feel like um, Christ says, come pick up your cross and follow me. That's a path of way more suffering than it is triumphalism. And again, the book of Job is in the Old Testament, but I do feel like it was just trying to give us a little like roadmap of what's it going to feel like to be in relationship with God when you suffer, as you suffer. Um, how do you look him in the eye? What do you want to talk to him about? And how might he respond? Um, even if you're saved and you are going to be in heaven with Christ, that's wonderful. But what happens if even as a faithful Christian, you encounter a season of suffering? Uh, so yeah, I just think that it's a gift to the church. And I, I, you hear me say it all the time. Everyone is suffering is the other yeah. thing that therapists know. We can say that, you know, people aren't talking about it enough. They are and they aren't. Everybody's complaining all the time about the things they're frustrated about. But for some reason, we're a little bit hesitant to call it suffering. Would you see that in like pastoral work? Do people tell you they're suffering or after an hour with them, do you see like, hmm, they've got a lot on their plate right now? Well, it's amazing that, I mean, between the pastoral and the therapist, you more encounter most of the time how people are trying to avoid their suffering. So the numbing out, the distractions. Mm -hmm. I mean, if Netflix is not an attempt for us to escape 
the just day-to-day grind of our suffering. I don't know <laughs> what is. Yeah. <laughs> and yet what's interesting about Job is that it disrupts us because it forces us to bring God and our suffering face-to-face. I actually, I think as a pastor, so often what I hear are people using God to avoid their suffering. Mm. So they kind of turn to prayer or they turn towards a sense of God's divine providence and they kind of say, you know, God intended it this way or aren't you, God's working good mm-hmm. or something is going to come out of this. And instead it really is their own attempt to escape the true pain They're going like all the way back. Baptizing it and trying to mm. be like, it's fine. I've whitewashed it. It's going to be okay. And it's not. And I think that's really, really true. So I want to, get to the suffering God. And the last episode of the journey with Job is only the suffering God can help. But before we get to that point of Job's journey, as a therapist, let's talk for just a moment about the real sticky question. We're not going to try to land this or uh, get wrestle this thing to the ground in any sense in this episode. But Job begins with the incredible dilemma that God is involved in the trauma that Job is facing, I mean, it doesn't avoid the implications. God is there setting up this wager with Satan, and Job's life is hanging in the balance. Just as a therapist, where does that strike you? How, like, how would you even navigate that? Because that pastorally is, that's, that is not helpful material, even as, as a Christian. I love <laughs> it. I need it. I mean, in some ways, it's nothing short of a nightmare because what you long to say to someone who's in great pain is God has nothing to do with this. You know, I think talking about sovereignty in suffering is such a difficult conversation because, you know, are we trying to say God caused this to happen? He intended it to happen. He allowed it to happen. You know, we really want to affirm two things at the same time that God is all-powerful and omniscient you know all these beautiful attributes that we believe he is and yet at the same time how do we hold that intention with his goodness and Mm -hmm. so i just think the opening of job is like a minefield where you're like is god good and yet he is going to allow these things to happen to job um you know again in this kind of like interaction with satan that you're um that you're just kind of like it's like pulling back the curtain this like weird aside in the bible that we don't really get a peek into heaven very often or into god's kind of inner world and suddenly we have this like do 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 you know here's what god was doing Sauntering. one day yeah it's really overwhelming i think is you know number one i would name that if you are walking through the book of job and it starts off with god knew what was going to happen to job man like are you not both comforted by that but also devastated by it because it does mean that you know the hardest things that have happened to you god knew about it thank god that he knew about it because it means that you know he will be in the rescue plan of how Mm. you're going to survive um as he is indeed with job however knowing that he knew is also really difficult because i think as humans we wrestle with um, does that not make God complicit? And I think that that is probably the weirdest thing um, at the give beginning. Me, give me just a little bit of the therapist approach here, because theologically speaking, there's all kinds of constraints. You've got to qualify everything you say. But as a therapist, mm-hmm. someone's sitting in your office and they're wrestling with God's role in their suffering and they're faced with this dual dilemma, right? That mm-hmm. on the one hand, if God allowed their trauma to happen, then 
God is complicit, just like you said. Yeah. And yet, on the other hand, if God wasn't involved in it, well, is this a God worth worshiping on a certain level? Is this a God that's just simply uninvolved in their life to the point of non-significance? Yeah. So as a therapist, you're navigating this space, even as someone listening who themselves has experienced trauma. How, how would you just sit with them, sit with Job, knowing or not knowing what's going on behind the scenes in the heavenly court? Man, you really, you take it easy on me, Karine. Um, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, you would be coming at it from a couple of different angles. I think you would not, one, try to approach it not being afraid of any of the questions. All the questions are allowed to be on the table. So I think we would have some really meaningful conversations about God's goodness and just, you know, yeah. let the person explore that. Because, you know, we can theolo theologically state it, but that does not mean that they feel that or know that. So I think we would be trying to parse apart that notion of, so this happened to you and often it is you know, a human that has caused it to you, um, yeah. a concrete face, a person, or maybe it's an institution or a system of power, but it was not God directly that caused it. We normally have more frustration that God did not stop it. And so I think we would guide the conversation in that direction mm -hmm. to kind of explore the grief around what happens when um, we were so badly hoping for a protector, but God did not choose that moment to prevent or stop or hold something back. And mm -hmm. um, you hear this all the time when somebody is really struggling with an illness, you know, why did God not take away my cancer? Yeah. They maybe didn't start thinking like, God gave me this cancer. And I doubt Job thought God has done this to me at the beginning, but later he may have had thoughts like, why didn't God stop these things from happening in the first place? And that's where, you know, we get into this inroad with our stories of suffering, because that question is again both very tragic but it weaves such incredible conversation into our life around post-traumatic growth that basically it says god I, I like to go in this direction god did not intend this to happen but he has allowed it to happen um because he knows the ending of the story yeah and the ending of the story will be your healing restoration um your soul being loved in his presence to its to, into wholeness again mm. but in that space in the middle between oh my goodness this is this still happened to me how horrendous and that moment of complete healing god's going to take you on a journey where when you ask that question what has this suffering taught me what have i learned how does it make me look at god differently myself differently others differently um there's unfortunately a lot of rich soil there i find that some of the most beautiful uh, conversations I've ever had have been in a counseling office around people making meaning out of the pain that they've had to survive, the pain yeah. that they've had to overcome, the trauma that they've had to learn to rise above. And again, it's trying to maybe partner with God. There's normally like a, a season where you're angry at God and you need someone to blame. And God's big enough to take it. Like he, mm. I like to say, go for it. You, maybe you do need to blame God for a while. Yeah. But eventually you will find that God is also willing to partner with you in the healing. And as you move from traumatized and in a victim state to a more uh, post-traumatic growth, embracing um, agency in Christ, agency with God, you start to look at God differently again, almost like, oh, 
maybe you're not my enemy. Maybe you're actually the hand that's reaching out to me to, to help me forward, to help me make something of this, to, again, not pretend that it never happened, but uh, imbibe what was meant to be learned from it and move on. That's a lot, but I, I think that's where I would try to steer it. Yeah, I mean, do you sense that's the heart of Job? Uh, to me, as you describe that, it, it captures the messiness of the book of Job. Mm-hmm. Just as you wrestle with these dynamics of feeling that he's experiencing, uh, the range of his emotions, the times in which he verges towards trust in God, he verges away from trust in God. You, you keep mentioning post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Could could you break down for us what a post-traumatic growth conversation space could look like in the church? Oh, I mean, the church should be where we're having these conversations. Um, and we're starting to, I don't need to be super doom and gloom about it. I think we're getting there, but basically for, for those who are listening and hearing this fancy phrase for the first time, post-traumatic growth is, you know, blowing up in the research industry because we're Mm. basically seeing that, yes, we are, still learning a lot about trauma and PTSD. And now that we know it's a diagnosis, there were basically a lot of scientists and psychologists that said, well, maybe if you've had trauma, like that's it for you. Like, right, you're you know, done for. You're done for. And yet they were studying all these lives that despite horrendous trauma, um, were actually living very healthy, productive, and even above average functioning lives. And mm. so then we started to get curious, like, hmm, wait a minute, like, Surely they should be, you know, and a lot of people are, you know, so this isn't universal, but they should be below the functioning line. Their life should have fallen apart. They should, you know, maybe be more disposed as some are to addiction, to early death, all these different things. And instead, we stumbled in some ways upon post-traumatic growth. And we were seeing that, you know, post-trauma, after their trauma, people were doing the work to grow and actually reported that they were stronger more resilient, um, wiser, you know, all these great qualities that we want to see in, you know, a thriving human culture that they had increased after the trauma. Would they have increased without the trauma? We we don't know, but we can measure that the traumatic event was so um, intense in their life that it demanded a verdict or it demanded a response. And it you know, you ha- kind of like we you talk about it in the podcast, like Job is like, I demand, I, I, I yeah. really need you to respond, God, to what has happened. And I wonder, would we have these kind of conversations with God um, if we didn't suffer? And I wonder Such if the church would get to have the type of relationship with some congregants if they didn't suffer. And again, the church maybe can shy away sometimes where it should lean in and realize because this person has suffered, we're actually going to have more spiritual conversation. They have the opportunity to grow into an even deeper relationship with God, into an even more um, heavenly version of themselves. And all, all I mean by that is like our heavenly state being our more perfected, healed. Yeah, their saint-likeness. Absolutely. I think, you know, I've met people, I know we often think of the same professor who, you know, he feels closer to sainthood because of the work he's done here on earth. Yeah. Um, around his suffering. The wounds are what have given him the grooves of wisdom and even compassion and mm-hmm. understanding. As you're talking, I, you, you do enter into that fun, mysterious, uh, late night in the dorm room conversation topic that is, what would Job have been if not for his suffering? You know, we're told that he's blameless. We're told that he's upright. We're told that he's the greatest of the men of the East. And yet 
something happens. Like this is where the Bible is so psychologically intuitive and aware. It really is tracking with this post-traumatic growth conversation when it argues Job learned and understood something about God and himself that he could not have received if not for Mm -hmm. his loss. And that's, that's hard to hold. It doesn't satisfy any of our immediate imminent demands for justice, this longing that Job's family should never have to suffer, the longing for all of us. Mm -hmm. None none of us should have to suffer. None of us should have to go through. It's not a comforting thought, but we have had conversations before. I like the idea that like wealth and privilege and, um, and prosperity, I suppose, insulates us and Mm. can therefore maybe simplify our life in ways that I don't want to judge anybody who has um, maybe not had, you know, any significant suffering, but they again, possibly have less of a life experience that overlaps with the heart of Christ than somebody who's been through a lot. And that is another weird part of the Venn diagram that doesn't bring a lot of comfort initially, but I do see that people who have suffered or who have overcome a lot of trauma eventually do find a strained camaraderie with Christ that says, oh, you were on a cross too, and you mm-hmm. have known, like, I can't look at you and say, you don't know what this is like, because on some level, Christ knows it tenfold. He, you know, he knew the most horrific death whilst bearing the sins past, present, and future. and there's a suffering in that that almost creates like a camaraderie or a moment of maybe I've glimpsed what it's like uh, to be, to, to understand the heart of Christ. And I know we love um, the, the, the small short book, <laughs> Lament for a Son. And one of the poems I adore in it is, is basically making that point where he says, you know, through my veil of tears, I glimpse the weeping Christ on the cross who perhaps more like me and I am more like him in this moment than I've ever been. Um, So again, there's an intimacy to the suffering. And if anything, when I read the book of Job, I think, wow, this man is close to God, both before the suffering, during the suffering, and hopefully after the suffering. Um, But I don't see somebody who who pulled away and gave up and walked away, even though he had every right to. There's a really passionate, emotional bring it all to the feet of God relationship that I love. There's a relentlessness to his pressing in, even, even in the midst of his trauma, that that's what's required for his growth to p- pass him through the veil of tears. Yes. So when it comes to Job's story as a therapist, the other major question I wanted to pick your brain around on air is the situation with his friends. Mm. And I think there is a good transition here that we desperately need to engage our suffering, even though so many of us are often avoiding it. The church can become a wonderful place Mm -hmm. for us in trauma to enter more deeply into growth. And yet in the case of Job, we find first these three friends, and then we find Elihu. We could talk about all of them, or maybe we could lump them together. That... it's fair to say underwhelm us in their performance as friends to suffering. So as a therapist, even give us some thoughts on working with clients who come in with their suffering. Like how are they talking about their friends? Where, where do you see the absence of community in their journeys with suffering? And then would love to hear your thoughts on what does a good friend to suffering look like? Mm-hmm. Oh man. I mean, I, 
always used to say that the profession of therapy exists in the first place because we had to professionally train people to know how to sit. Yeah, with, I love that. You know, it's like the sadness that we've literally had to pay people to be the friends that Job's weren't. Couldn't have. And, you know, there is something wonderful about that. I love that therapy exists, but I always did think, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if this profession and my job wasn't needed anymore? If you just showed up and everyone was like, you know what? I'm receiving such incredible emotional support and understanding from my church family and friends that I don't need this anymore. Like that's the dream that people would not need you anymore. Um, but sadly is not the case. So most people come to therapy because they are not finding, you know, healing conversations in other places. Um, and a lot of the start of therapy is actually sifting through kind of Job friend advice that has not been very helpful picking apart the painful narratives that have been spoken over them, the naming that other people have done, um, often from a place of oversimplifying what's happened to them, judging, um, or especially this theme in Job of, are you sure it wasn't your fault? Like you didn't cause this to happen. There has to be some unfound sin and, you know, there's no smoke without fire is kind of the sentiment. It's classic, yeah. There's so much shame that people often start therapy with um, that they do wonder, is this my fault? Especially, you know, in the field of PTSD and especially in the field of sexual abuse, there is so much shame um, of, it must have possibly been my fault. You know, I was also potentially complicit in this and um, and I don't want to tell anybody. That's the other really interesting thing is how many people don't even feel safe to talk about their trauma with close family and friends out of fear of not being believed or I think out of fear of hearing some of the things that come out of Job's friends' mouths. Yeah, we almost are just trying to avoid the exact scenario Job finds himself in. They're like knives to the heart. Like when you read some of what they've said to Job, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, in a reality TV show, it's like a glass of wine in the face every single time. They're just, um, it's not comforting. It's not coming alongside. It doesn't feel very Christ-like, you know, not that we have hundreds of examples of Christ comforting suffering people but you just read it and you feel all that shame and and fear and for me I feel this impulse to hide like oh my goodness if I yeah. went through a hard time and I talked to my friends and they said these kind of things to me I would just want to go it would kill me it would kill me it would be really painful to hear that yeah and there's certainly something to be said that the book of job almost seems to be going out of its way to make this point that these friends are particularly religious and that the great devastation is that is actually the most religious people who are doing the most harm friendship wise in the words that they're saying so painful i mean it's this i think it can be because they start to take on the voice of god yeah in a way that a non-religious person doesn't so you know maybe Joe down the street said something like, I think that was your fault. And you go, well, that that hurts my feelings, but I think I can overcome the the judgment of Joe. But if, um, you know, a friend from church says, I am speaking on behalf of God or God must be judging you, then it's not just that friend. It's also God, the creator of the universe. The person I'm supposed to partner with, to heal with is actually, you know, punishing me, pointing a finger at me, causing things. And so it becomes this obstacle to healing sometimes. 
Where again, if you believe the advice of Job's friends, I think it actually could have delayed perhaps Job's uh, reconciliation with God by years and years. It certainly does for people I've met who have just had really hard things said to them and they don't go back to church or they, you know, they have to really like have a lot of fights with God before they can reconcile. Like, was that friend right though? Like, is what they said true? I almost, I could be wandering into dangerous territory here, but pastorally, I would make the point to that, that part of where the Christian faith has been losing ground culturally is our failure in friendship, Mm -hmm. specifically that the world comes across so affirming and accepting right now. I mean, there's just this embrace that you know you will not be judged by the world. You may not be helped by the world when it comes to your trauma or your suffering, and that's one of the great crises you face. If you are suffering, who is there to help you? But at least the world won't judge you, whereas Christians have so much fixation on protecting Mm -hmm. and defending God, much as Job's friends do, that we so quickly feel this impulse within us to need to take God's voice on when someone brings the threat of their suffering before us. Oh man. Yeah. I'm just, I'm having my own like flashbacks that I think it is hurtful that in some ways, you know, let's, let's be compassionate even to Job's friends for a second. I think they're trying, trying to be good Christians and they're trying to represent God well. And I've had friends who in moments where I've been in pain, they maybe in trying to keep right with God on their side of how they're doing with God, they're yeah. thinking, oh, I, you know, I might need to come in with a rebuke or I might need to challenge this person or I might need to uphold holiness and righteousness. And surely that is what this person needs most. And I'm all for, you know, therapeutic intervention, challenging, all these good things. But you just get the sense that this was not the right time, not the right place. Suffering is not the context for your interventions of holiness. The ash heap is never the right time for you to correct. So I just feel like you must start with uh, compassion and empathy. And, you know, certainly the foundation of every counseling program is this phrase that, you know, I've really wrestled with because it's a weird one. But it's every counselor needs to practice unconditional positive regard. Um, unconditional, no matter who it is, you know, no matter who you're sitting across from, um, whether they're, they're a client that you naturally enjoy and want to spend a lot of time working with, or whether there's someone you just don't know how to relate to, or maybe you do personally feel um, kind of shocked by what they're sharing, you're unconditionally present to them and yeah. you're not judging them. And I do think that Christians struggle with that. The second thing, you're, you have positivity towards them. So unconditional positive regard for them. Um, I am amazed at how many friends, you know, it's not even like a stranger on the street or like you made an appointment with a stranger at church to talk about your problems, but a friend who knows you, who should know you is looking at you with, you know, maybe suddenly they're like, Oh, actually now that you're suffering, this is giving me an opportunity to have a few corrections. I have a few few concerns Mm -hmm. about your faith. I've had a few concerns about the way you were living your life. This is like my foot in the door to say the things that. Um, I wouldn't normally say in the context of friendship, but now that I can say it with God behind it, like now that giving you're it vulnerable weight, and exactly. God is on trial, uh, God and I are going to have a few I'm, corrections I'm, to make. That's perhaps the thing that I love about therapy. Um, even though it's hard to be a Christian therapist, sometimes I do love that over time I realized I don't need to defend God in this office. And actually it helps 
in some ways when I allow the person to go after God as much as they need to. And I can quietly and confidently in the quiet of my own heart um, know that I believe God and I, I believe everything's going to be okay. But I don't need to defend him. He's big enough to take whatever that person needs to throw at him. And I do think that friends who step in like Job's friends and try to rebuke, correct, um, uphold holiness and righteousness, especially in that moment, their timing is wrong. And they, in some ways, are just being so sinful at the end that they are missing a key opportunity to be, to really be Christ and to say um, what needs to be said, which is often not saying very much. It's presence. It's that unconditional positive regard that says, I don't need to understand or give you reasons, but I can hold this. And that's a whole category in therapy of, is this, are you being held in what you're experiencing? Mm. Not physically, but emotionally. Are they yeah. holding it with you? And as I read Job, I just feel like Job's friends are dropping him yeah. all over the place. They can't hold it. They don't want to hold they it. They don't have the capacity to yeah. hold the questions that Job is asking. Or the, it's actually amazing when you read it. They spend almost no time talking about like, hey man, I'm really sorry your wife and children died. Like that you your lost possessions all your possessions. Are gone. Your status, your significance to the community. Like would they want to trade places with Job? It's very unlikely. And I, I think most of us like to tell ourselves, um, well, I never would have gotten myself into that situation anyway. And that's the, I hope I can say this thought well. I think we as church and Christian and religious people move to judgment because it helps us feel in control. It helps us feel like, oh, if I'd been in their shoes, this never would have happened to me because yeah. I would have been able to control the situation differently. I would have avoided these sins. I would have been above reproach in these ways. So you know what? That would never touch me. Instead of the really scary reality that's like, oh no, God and Satan just had a chat in heaven and you know, unrelated to Job's behavior, this really painful thing happened to him. And it actually really, it, he didn't cause it. It just happened. Yeah. And the chaos of that, I think, shakes religious people um, in a really hard way because they would rather retain some type of control. Either God's 100% in control or I, in my relationship with God, can you know, move the pieces on the chessboard so to good. make sure that ash heap never comes my way. Yeah, the book of Job is going after the religious sense of control, which, if we're being honest as a pastor, I'd say is exactly why we struggle so much with talking about God's providence and suffering, but why we're so fixated on it as well. We want to control it. We, we want to know the answers. We want to be the ones who can confidently assert, well, that was God's will and that was not. And now you're suffering the consequences and I'm reaping the rewards. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter that Job relentlessly pushes in their presence is it's just not the way that suffering works. And there actually could be a gift if you would release the control that you're mm -hmm. looking for. Oh, absolutely. The gift can be that it's like amazing to walk alongside someone. It's very holy as they're healing from yeah. suffering and as they're getting that intimate with God and asking those sticky questions. And if you can hang in there. I mean, I, I do have compassion for Job's friends because who wants to be them? Right. I, it's not fun. It's if you can hang in there, there's a holy experience for you both where you get that front row seat of really watching them deepen, you know, their worldview and relationship with God. I did want to say that while we're talking about the friends that, you know, I've thought about them with compassion that I both have had, you know, maybe that Job friend figure in my life that I've been really hurt by. 
who has just said the wrong thing at the wrong time right, or right. who missed the empathetic moment and instead, you know, maybe out of their own insecurity or need to protect God, moved to rebuke or to correction in a moment where I just felt like I was bleeding out and mm-hmm. I was like, could you be more insensitive? So I felt that and I have, you know, all the contempt for it. But I also would be really prideful if I didn't acknowledge, I think I too have been Job's friend, that I've seen someone in a moment of suffering. And I think we all have that moment, that thought that's like, did you bring it on yourself? And I think, you know, part of what we do need to do as a church with the book of Job is learn from Job's friends and say, you probably will have this thought when you see someone, you're going to be tempted to think it. You're even going to be tempted to open your mouth and assert it and say, I think you did this, or I think your sin caused this. And you know, we talk again, unconditional positive regard. I accept that that thought may come to me, but it's not important for me to think through what should I do with it? Do I agree with it immediately and base all of my, you know, judgments about the situation around that, you know, judgment or hunch? Or can I remain open and curious? And I do want to just promote that as much as possible. We all can be Job's friends. And the lesson that I wish they had learned that I think we can from this story is that when someone is suffering, stay curious. Don't judge or rush to correction, but just Mm. stay in that curious, open posture. What's it like to feel this way? What happened? Tell me more. Um, You know, what do you think it's going to take to feel better? What do you need? What do you not need? Just being present. But in, in, in our need to tie it up with a bow, we often say all the wrong things. And instead, it's better to ask questions and be present and just stay in that open curious posture of hmm, okay I don't understand this trauma but man I, I'm willing to stay close to it and to ask questions just open-ended questions to understand it yeah at that person's pace yeah how much time do you think it takes to walk as a friend through a trauma like what Job experienced because I mean this is the hard mm. truth of, of why so few of us do well in this task even as a therapist Someone walks into you with trauma. How long is that initial journey? <laughs> I mean, we all want it to be four to six sessions, right? Where they walk in and then they're, Which, they're all done. even that, if we're talking about friendships, most friends want yeah, to get their thoughts spend, out in one session. They don't want to spend six weeks just listening or they trying don't want to get to, get to the heart hours. of it. They want to give you six hours. But, I mean, my approach, it, it takes longer than a lot of people want it to be, Um I like psychodynamic therapy. I like, you know, really getting into it. And um, even EFT, emotions-focused therapy, like you're going to sit and be present um, to the feelings that come up for as long as it takes. Because if you rush that person, um, then the healing, to some extent, will be temporary or will only work for a certain amount of time. And then they'll need to come back. And that's okay, too. But it is longer than most people want to give it credit for. I saw some clients for years and, you know, that was not hopefully because I was a terrible therapist, but it was because there was a lot to work and walk through and they needed to be handled with great care. I love Dan Allender, as you know, and he has this great phrase that's like, if you're going to enter into someone's story, you must take your shoes off. And it's oh, such a simple so little phrase. But you know, when you go over to somebody's house, you don't always want to do that because sometimes you want right, it to it's be... It's kind of uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. You and it, it implies that you're going to stay a while. You know, yeah. you don't take your shoes off if you're just there for five minutes. Um, I'm trying to think of the last time I did it. It was like, truly, I'm about to spend a long time you yeah, know, at this person's I'm house. It's going to get in. comfy. 
And I think that we don't take our shoes off when we enter into our friends' stories um, more often than not because we want to get in and out. We, and again, it's like I've heard people talk about poverty as like a sickness we don't want to catch. And I think that's really true. But I think it's also true of suffering. We're scared to get close to it because being around someone who has depressive thoughts, anxious thoughts, you know, PTSD symptoms, we ourselves can be scared that I'm going to catch this if I spend too much time with you. You know, you're drowning and you're going to pull me under the water with yeah. you. And I have so much to say about how you can safely be close to someone who is suffering. You don't have to be drowning with them to be close. And um, however, in our self-protective, you know, instinctive way of, of trying to pull away from someone, I think most of us want someone to get over suffering in you know like two or three weeks actually a really stupid example is i was you know with disney plus being back online again my sister and i were watching uh, the princess diaries movie and they changed the storyline in the movie then from the book and in the movie her dad has passed away and there's this moment where she's with her best friend lily and they're walking up a hill and uh she's like well you know my dad died and the sister goes hey like it's been six months already like I thought you were over that and you know maybe it was two years or something but she says a ridiculously short amount of time <laughs> and like I thought you were over the death of your father yeah, and I just I thought, thought you were over that already huh? and she delivered it with so much sincerity and I think we're all capable of saying yeah, that you know there could be friends in your life right now that you're thinking I thought you were over that and yeah. we're impatient with it because it's uncomfortable to be with it and therapists like god love us as a profession you are paid to be patient and to take as long as it takes and i think we need to really lengthen our expectations um and you know to be concrete if we're talking about you know true ptsd trauma it's a lifetime so this is great for you is that i know we've used before with um interns we've worked with and it's basically saying like we're not curing we are caring for somebody and i i think again job's friends come in with the intention to yeah, cure. yeah they want that cure don't they we all do like i have compassion for it but truly the long-term vision is to care and you're gonna potentially have to care for that person in a limping state until you know eternity until they're glorified in heaven that is, I think, you know, what carrying a cross with Christ yeah. and with one another looks like. There, there's some record I stumbled across a couple different numbers that uh, you always kind of assume Job is happening fast, but the rabbis who read it and would ponder it, because rabbis love to read and they love to ponder these specific questions, but they started to ask. It was pondering rabbis. It was pondering rabbis. How long? How long did the book of Job question. take? And uh, some of them started to say, you know, Job, Job was 40 years old. Uh, they sat in silence for seven days. What the Bible doesn't tell us is that they, these friends then debated. And some say, because 40 is, of course, the number you go with, they debated for 40 days uh, back and forth, mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth. Some, however, suggest that they debated for 40 years. And that's mm. these three friends meticulously work through these issues for 40 years before God finally appears, which if you're tracking with Israel's story, 40 years in the wilderness is not an uncommon time for God to make his people wait to work through the challenges mm -hmm. and the oppression and the suffering that they have endured. Oh, it's so good. I mean, you've heard me teach on it, but when I teach on lament, I love to make that point that you know, biblical lament has this moment, this turning point from 
despair and complaint and really protesting, you know, your case to God to suddenly this affirmation of trust and, you know, praise of who God is. And it can kind of seem bipolar when you're reading it, that it's like, I'm raging, I'm furious, I'm heartbroken, right. and don't worry, God, I love you. Now we're good. And it's just this great moment to, where, you know, a teacher was pointing out, we don't know how long it took to write this psalm, and it probably wasn't in one sitting. You know, they, they likely returned to it time and time again. Perhaps weeks, years passed between David beginning the story and ending the story. And there is something really, I think, comforting about that for people who can also feel rushed in their healing process. Like, yeah, there's not going to be a rush. What yeah. if it took 40 years for Job and God to hash this out? I mean, lives were longer, we're told, mm-hmm. back then. And I just feel like this wasn't a short conversation. Maybe that's the, the tagline. What, what if it takes us 40 years to work through our questions? As you're sitting with a friend who's gone through trauma, the tension, the temptation is... You so desperately want them in six Mm -hmm. weeks, in six months, even in six years to get right with God. And yet pastorally, there's this intriguing question to me. We've talked about this so many times that one of the great questions we want to commit our lives to is what does it take to have sustainable faith Mm -hmm. that I still hold on to when I die? And I think that's the kind of faith that is required of job that that's it's a job in faith that can endure with your questions for 40 years and still hold out mm-hmm. for god to appear trusting that it only takes one appearance in the whirlwind for all the questions you ask to be sustained to come and, together in a way that again maybe doesn't give an answer but can give you enough peace to say all right i, I see you lord And I think you have to be honest. Again, Job is just relentlessly honest. I love that about the book as well. But again, it's a John Lynch, I believe, quote. But I just love the, you don't have to pretend to be any closer to God than you are. Because spoiler alert, he knows. He knows. (laughs) And so I think there's a lot of people, myself included in the past, in churches who have felt the pressure to have this veneer of closeness with God. Like they're closer than they really are. Because again, we can have shame, like maybe it's my fault that I'm not closer to God, when really the more honest thing to say would be my wife dying of cancer has put distance between me and God. I still believe he's there. I still want to claim my faith as a Christian. But man, I'm in a ash heap of questions around his goodness. I've got Job questions and I don't want Job friends right now. I need a whirlwind encounter. You know, that's, I think that needs to be more accepted and understood in the church. To maybe wrap this thing up and to try to land the plane as much as you can in such a big conversation around suffering, maybe we should have more conversations like this. Yeah. What do you think? I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah, we barely talk about this stuff. Um, The study that we put together for the book of Job kind of tracks these eight sections, eight movements, and the heart behind it that I know you've worked with me on is how do we give... uh, a sort of map, a trajectory of Job's story that can help a person who themselves is wrestling with God and their suffering. How do we how do we walk alongside Job in the journey towards encounter? And so, as we're kind of bringing this series to a close here, those eight steps are first Job starting at the ash heap, then Job moving through lament, Job engaging rigorously in this trial with the friends where. Job puts God on trial, even as the friends put Job on trial. 
then Job making his appeal, sort of putting together both the protest against the friends, the appeal that he's making to God on behalf of his innocence. He experiences the rebuttal of Elihu, inevitably this sort of counter question, but then the final three stages, maybe as the key vision of what the journey of healing through suffering is aiming towards. It's the whirlwind, so Mm. it's encounter with God. It's confession, the moment in which the sufferer articulates whatever faith is there in light of the encounter. And then finally, it's a restoration of some kind, some sense of renewal or renewed purpose. Mm -hmm. As I put that before you as a therapist, and as you even think about the encouragement towards anyone who's heard any of this podcast series, who could download this study and could work through some of this either on their own or with a small group or with a therapist, what would be your encouragement on this journey with Job? What, what stands out to you about it? Uh, what is especially challenging about that journey? What, what word of advice would you give to the sufferer who is looking to journey with Job? You know, just in like a bite-sized moment. Um, you know, I, I love these questions. I think it's summarizing what we have been talking about so far. It, you know, to you who are listening, who has suffered, who has lived with trauma or is going through it right now, I think it's important you know that this book is included in scripture and that that wasn't unintentional. Yeah, start right there. That's, we just need to start with that. You this are book is seen. a gift for you. Job is seen, and his his story is included. We're ha- we're having this moment that I, you know, it's very painful and stressful, but it's also beautiful that the stories of survivors um, of horrible abu- abuse and uh, toxic environments are are being heard more than ever before. There's a whole other conversation on how important it is to be heard, to have those stories told. Yeah. And um, for Job's story to be told in the Bible is a really big deal. It's a gift. And it means that your story is not insignificant and it is not something to be ashamed of or something to, you know, to stuff down and kind of try to erase from the narrative of your life. Maybe you're not in that space yet. You might just be in the place of, I wish this had never happened. And that is completely okay. I understand that phase. But I want you to know that this is part of your story, um, warts and all, and that God is going to use it and it will be become, and you are becoming through it, um, a more whole version of yourself, even though in this moment you may never have felt so broken. Mm. Um, but please know that the inclusion alone is really, I think, healing and imp- important and powerful. God did not seek to erase the suffering person from scripture, but instead he includes them. He even includes a righteous sufferer, someone who it was just pure chaos that this happened to him. Um, He didn't deserve it. He didn't cause it, but he finds himself experiencing it. Um, And I think that's really important. Number two, something I take a lot from Job, you and I talk about it um, a lot as we've been seeing this podcast series unfold. It takes time for this to be comforting, but I do think that a lot of the time when we're suffering or when trauma has happened to us, we are preoccupied for years, maybe for a lifetime, with the question, why? Why has this happened to me? Why did yeah. God allow this to happen to me? And we actually torture ourselves with the answers as Job's friends torture him with their answers. And if let's just entertain for a minute. If there's a, an actual answer to the why, why was I abused and not my cousin? Why was I 
given cancer, but that person wasn't? Why did my parent die, but theirs didn't? Um, if there's a true why answer, you know, like let's just pretend there was an envelope that someone could hand you and you opened it and it said, oh, it's because you did this in the third grade or it's because mm. deep down you are a lustful person or right, whatever your right. deepest fear is. I can't even come up with it. But if there was an answer, that would be really crushing and devastating. And it's really tough because in some ways we want to be uh, able to blame ourselves because again, that gives us a measure of control. If it's my fault, then at least I can do something differently next time and it won't happen to me again. And we work on that in therapy. We talk about how you can reclaim agency. But I do think that there is space to have this conversation that Joe brings up, that sometimes suffering is truly purely chaotic there is no reason job's friends search for it they spend you know pages attacking and trying to comb him and figure out what it is and there is just this sense of it just happened it just happened and i know that that's not in that may not be immediately comforting to you in this moment as you listen but man like that has been such a big deal to me because um there's just been this sense of oh i don't have to comb myself or we don't have to you know search for this needle in a haystack that this is why it happened or this is you know the thing in me the blot on my beautiful white wedding dress that you know caused all this to happen and it it just was there's a chaos to it and I would I imagine Christ saying this sometimes, like with just tears and tragedy on his face, as he says, it was just the chaos of sin of this fallen world. Yeah. And man, does it break my heart the most. And I'm going to go the furthest I possibly can to redeem and restore and heal you. Um, but please do not spend your whole life thinking this is my fault. It's that goodwill hunting moment, I was just say <laughs> you know. That. You got to go to goodwill hunting. Um, man, and, I miss and, Robin Williams. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't always apply to every person's story because I, I've even heard the pushback where, for some people and their trauma, it, the line specifically from goodwill hunting is, "It's not your fault." Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it's what cuts through the defense. Yeah. It's what he's been holding. It, it's what has become the ironclad shell of control yeah. to everything we're talking about. In fact, it's. It's Job's own temptation as he's wrestling with Wouldn't his questions that he, he wants to control too. That's what's so heartbreaking as he's debating back and forth his innocence with these friends. Mm-hmm. He, he wants to be pure. He wants to know that he did enough to avoid the suffering that he's found himself. And Robin Williams cuts through it with, it's not your fault. I know some people struggle with that because uh, they do hold their mm-hmm. own complicitness, their agency. And even as you read Job, sometimes the, the wrestle is, well, I'm not innocent or blameless or pure. Absolutely. None of us are. And I, and again, there are some situations where maybe what you need is to be held accountable for actions that fed into the situation. But I mean, you know, specifically... All suffering. All suffering has In- this element of pollution of sin from the garden of eden that we're just all under this like cloud of pollution that is affecting us that is just eroding and trying to attack humanity and god it he's he saved us from it we will receive healing eventually but it doesn't mean that we're not suffering right now and to always need there to be a correlation i did this so that means that happened and you know i didn't do this so that means this happened Job actually blows that up. I remember this really great spiritual formation model 
that was moving through kind of how the Bible even unfolds the journey of faith. And we start with Abrahamic faith that's just, you know, hello, here I am. Okay, come follow me. And, you know, it's just all instinctive. And Abraham doesn't know much, but he, he has faith and he knows God. And that's awesome. We move on then to Moses and it's like this representation of the law. So now there are rules. And if we stayed here in the Bible, then maybe I would agree, like Job's friends, "Mm, this is a give and take. If you were holy, then you'll be blessed. If you're not holy, then you'll be cursed. And so, you know, we need to make sure almost like karma, Christianity could have stayed in that space. (laughs) Christian karma. But then praise God for the book of Job. It comes in and it blows it up because Job does everything right, we're told, and yet he suffers. And I just think that that inclusion really matters because some of you are listening and you're combing yourself for why did this happen to me? And again, it may only comfort you years from now, but just know it never should have happened. It is not your fault that that goodwill hunting moment, you did not cause it um, as much as you are just the recipient of yeah. of this fallen world and i am so so deeply sorry um it I, I just know that christ weeps and that he is doing what he can which is a lot to redeem and restore the situation but man you know what what a waste of your one precious um holy life that was marred by this experience and you will you will grow. Post-traumatic growth is completely possible, but I just think, you know, healing will start there. Just realizing that there is grace and that you do not have to be the cause of all the pain in your life that actually is going to trip you up and hold you back from healing more than it will release you to restoration with God. So I think that's huge. Um, The other Mm. thing I would just point out out of the book is, you know, do be wary to some extent of the counsel in your life. You want good counsel. And maybe Job did think, you know, I've got these super religious, awesome friends that know the know God backwards and forwards. Um, but I, I'm glad that Job was willing to fight with them and to push back. Yeah. And he's not a pushover. And unfortunately, I think I am sometimes. You know, if somebody said those things to me, I would be like, okay, I'm tempted to believe them. Maybe it was. Um, but Job has a, a backbone and he's able to defend, you know, even just the, his honest relationship with God where he's going, no, like I, I haven't done those things. It's not that. It's not that. Like I, I refuse to make something up. And um, instead, I, I really want to know. I want closeness with God. I want to understand, you know, on a deeper level. Um, what was it? Because it wasn't me. And I think um, his wariness of his friend's advice matters and I I do think there's a lot of people walking around in clouds of shame because they have taken their friend's voice as the voice of God and those are two different things it's really hard to parse them apart and if you're going to a church that is speaking for God it can be even harder to parse it apart because the church is meant to help us hear God's voice um but sometimes we're letting humans speak on behalf of God and that is just nothing short of sin. They are not God. They should not be speaking as if they are God. It's spiritually very abusive and painful to have someone speak with the authority of God out of a human vessel that isn't Jesus Christ. And so there is a real, take it with a pinch of salt. You know, you need to go to the source, which is what Job eventually does. You go to God with this. And it's very important that you take the fight there. 
Walter Brueggemann talks about the Old Testament particularly having this sense in which there's both testimony given by Israel towards God. So this is how God is. This is how we approach God. This is how God has revealed himself to us. But then we find as well these strange voices of counter-testimony. And I don't need to necessarily walk with Walter Brueggemann everywhere he goes to acknowledge the wisdom in creating space in our spiritual lives for counter testimony. Mm -hmm. And so for some of us, we actually need more jobs in our faith that we've been walking quite secure, pristine, doctrinal Christian lives of faith. And what we need is openness to really hear the counter testimony of Mm -hmm. the sufferer around us. I mean, this summer in all of the racial protests that have been going on around the country have just felt like a relentless insistence of counter testimony that things have not been good in the relationship between African Americans and the police. And you, and the list could go on from there. All of the different counter testimonies that our culture is waking up to, we need to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Yet in our own life, I think there's even a wisdom, everything you're saying, that we need to create space in our own spiritual journeys for as much as we need our pastors as much as we need our therapists, as much as we need our friends, it is healthy to have space for the counter testimony to insist on God to show up, insist on God to vindicate, insist on God to speak if mm-hmm. we're to truly navigate what is often far more complex and far more confusing when it comes to our suffering than anyone wants to give it credit for. I mean, there, there just are no clear answers when it comes to how to navigate <laughs> suffering. There's just no clear right We've way to do it are talking around and about suffering but we haven't solved it you know and i think that is the um sticky amorphous mess that it is in some ways um and there are some mysteries i think we're supposed to hold i think that that's actually more of the task is of learning to hold a mystery and not need to solve it but to remain close to god as you hold it that's a faith that i want to really learn from and be close to and there are people in our life that I think some people might look at from the outside and go man like they're maybe a hot mess as a Christian but personally I have great admiration for them because we are privileged to know the hard things that have happened to them and the fact that they have a scrap of faith that they still look God in the eye call Christ king and savior at all yeah is a greater act of faith to me than you know somebody who who has lived, you know, kind of just a, a very straightforward existence and has not been marked or had to suffer. Yeah. Um, there's they've just wrestled something... with the whirlwind. Yeah. And they've purified their confession through the suffering. It, it's not always a confession of glory. In many ways, the confession of suffering is exactly where Job goes, mm-hmm. which is, I am now comforted God. And I mean, sometimes I think I, an all therapist must be masochistic because it's like we want to spend time with painful situations and people who have been through a lot of pain and who are suffering. But the treasure I think that most therapists also know is that in this profession, you get to sit in the trenches and on the front line with some of the most incredible people yeah, on earth. Yeah, you see the heart of... You that which you can't buy or forge any other way. conversations. You get to hear you know you just get this front row seat to healing and there is something that i have have loved about that in the profession that um, i've seen that post-traumatic growth that holy spirit healing that 
Christ coming alongside and just performing, you know, everyday miracles in someone who shouldn't want to ever be close to anyone again after what's happened to them. But they take those small risks to make a friend, to, you know, allow a roommate or whatever it is. And I've just been so um, humbled and amazed and they're the best people to spend time with. Um, So in some ways, I do believe we're all suffering, but some people are more honest about it than others. And some have had more pronounced, you know, experiences than others. Um, all our suffering is not as equally devastating, but man, if we could just talk about it more, we would have so much more in common. And I think we would have richer, deeper friendships, relationships, and faith. Um, our church communities could really be what I think we're trying to be all the time. You know, these wonderful communities that are, you know, healing and, you know, everybody wants to be a part of. But if we can't lead with those questions, if we can't lead with our pain, then we're going to be hiding to some extent. And in that hiddenness, we'll be lonely. And in that loneliness, we're going to start to doubt God. And I just would love to scrap all that and say, bring the pain. Because very rarely have I gotten to counsel someone who doesn't leave more faith-filled because they went on a Job journey. And then somebody who resented, or you just pushed it down and avoided and didn't want to go there. Yeah. Yeah, well, as we wrap this up, I, I do think there's a lot more conversation on suffering for us to have, even to draw on your therapist's wisdom. You've mentioned Dan Ellender, mm-hmm. a couple of the resources. We'll keep working through these and even, I think, need to do some more studies in the future as we continue to engage suffering. Would you have any other resources you'd recommend? I mean, absolutely. I would affirm the Allender Center and uh, Dan Allender. And he has, for those of you who don't know him, he is a, a leading Christian thought leader and therapist around um, sexual abuse for Christians. And, you know, he, he's done work far beyond just the church and Christians, but um, he really has done a great job of integrating faith and sexual abuse and what it looks like to make sense of your faith if that's happened to you. Um, so he has some wonderful workshops that are really practical. His to be told um, workshop. That... Yeah, it's really powerful material. I help you get deeper into the heart of your own story of suffering. Absolutely. It's so good. Um, if you are thinking about therapy, I would recommend you. Um, there's a lot of different modalities. And so you might need to try out a couple of different types of therapy to figure out what's helping you the most. And so for some people, it might be EMDR. It's this special technique that works with rapid eye movement to help you unlock the difficult things that you don't want to talk about day to day. For others, it could be psychodynamic therapy, which is really um, learning to take the stories of your whole life and make meaning from them, um, understanding the archetypes in your story and how you can use them to unpack the present and your future. And it could be emotion-focused therapy where you learn to be present to the emotions that come up in your day-to-day suffering and to feel and work through them instead of stuffing them down. And there's a whole host of others, but I do recommend you ask your therapist, you know, session one, what type of modalities might you use as you treat me Um, and just kind of get a sense of what's going on there. Um. I would love everything that Andrew Smutzer, um, we have a great professor of yeah, ours. one of our great mentors, whose, whose book, Naming Our Abuse, I think, does a really great job navigating. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, too, is talking about sexual abuse specifically, but it's just a helpful journey into suffering and awareness of the Jobs who are both around you or perhaps your own experience with Job. So good. 
yeah, everything he's written is just, uh, you'll, you'll feel it in his writing. He is one who has suffered, but one who has wrestled with that whirlwind, and it's wonderful. Um, I also have a resource that you know about. If you go to just my website, jennaperine.com, there's a free downloadable uh, resource that teaches you how to write a lament. And you better believe we'll be plugging that. Oh, goodness. Um, jennaperine.com. You heard it here. Mm-hmm. But lament is what I would often point people to. And yes. I, I'm very passionate about it and have spent a lot of time um, teaching on it and trying to create resources around it. Um, Aaron Nequist and I uh, created a, a a new liturgy. So if you go to a newliturgy.com, you'll see, I think it was number six or seven, um, was on Lament. And it was this really beautiful track that I'm, I'm so proud of that we had, you know, the brilliance weighed in on Aaron, Fatai, myself did some spoken word. And it's basically a prayer of Lament that guides you through the steps of Lament um, yeah. to just have a fully orbed experience of expressing your pain before God. So I'll, my little phrase is that you need to make your implicit pain explicit before God and lament is a tool and a resource to help you do that. So I you know, want to point to my own resources, Absolutely. but um, there are also some phenomenal books out there on lament um, and there's different types of lament and I think we're, you know, all are worth researching and getting into, but those are some good places to start. That's fantastic. Yeah. So as we wrap this up, any last word you would give us or close with here as we reflect on Job and his story and as you and I hold before our listeners the question of suffering? The first thing that comes to mind is I'm just really grateful you made this. And I, more than anyone, know intimately some of the, the pain in our life that birthed um, this project. And um and why these questions matter to us and, and why we want to take God seriously and wrestle with his word seriously in it. So I'm really glad that as you were birthing the burning word, that this is the book you wanted to start with. There's just something um, that affirms to me, you know. That it feels urgent. It is pressing. And I, I do think that's it's just a word to end on that we have both in our marriage and our families in our own journeys, we've we've walked with Job and whenever you have tasted the suffering of Job, it really does make you aware of the need to engage this journey as mysterious and hard and overwhelming as it is, but, but also how difficult it can be to find companions on the road of suffering. And so to that end, uh, yeah, I, I think there's an encouragement here to say, you are not alone as you're listening to this, that we have walked this with you. And yet there's also the urgency to say you need to find more companions to mm-hmm. walk this road with. And you can't I do this really, alone. You cannot and should not do it alone. And they are there if you're willing to look. You may have to pay, maybe a therapist, yeah. but more and more we are encountering tremendous people of faith who are not shying away from these conversations. And you know, I, I wish we could be the one, uh, Stephen Gerber, this teacher we really enjoy, had this great phrase where he would be like, I wish I could take you on a walk and hear your story and just have time to, to really listen to what, what's on your heart. And I feel that, like I, and I know other pastors and counselors and friends feel that too, that not everybody wants to push you away or correct you. There are people out there who are passionate to just be present to you, to give you that, um, that Christ-like presence to come alongside you. 
And if you're listening and you are suffering right now, just know that this was created for you out of a place to just start there. Let's entertain the idea that this may not be your fault and you are not alone. God sees you and he wants you to encounter him. Yeah, I know your prayer as well as mine and the the true need at the heart of Job is a need for encounter. And so our prayer for you would be even as we close out this series, we move on to an exciting new series with the burning word. Suffering will never be far from our heart, yet what you truly need more than anything else is an encounter with the whirlwind. It's absolutely what Job needed. It's terrifying, it's challenging, and yet that's our prayer, that you would find others who would walk with you and would join you in your own search to really encounter God. Amen. Thank you.